This is the Kavnis HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Kavnis. Hello, and welcome to Kavnis HR Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash HR. Our guest today is Robert Lee. Robert, are you ready to be great today? Hey, good to be able to see you today, Kev. I've been following your, your podcast for a little while. and You've always got some fascinating guests, so it's an honor. Thank you very much. Robert Lee is a career entre- entrepreneur who sometimes refers to himself as, as a Forrest Gump of high tech. His diverse adventures encompass computer programming and hardware design, marketing consulting, advertising, and electronic payment systems. As a founder and chief strategist behind successful businesses in both the U.S. and Canada, Robert and his companies have received national media exposure that include coverage in New York Times and the front page of PC Week, now E-Week. In 1998, he founded UTM Systems Corporation, the first company to successfully process network-certified pin-based debit transactions online. Lee holds, Robert holds several patents in the field of payment transactions and digital imaging. Having witnessed firsthand the remarkable transformation of technology in the last 35 plus years, Lee is known for his unique ability to put high-tech concepts into applications. Some of his inventions have included the first colored digital scanners for PCs and Macs, PC fax cards, and POS terminals for internet, credit, and debit transactions. He has worked alternatively in digital imaging, banking, and transactions, as well as the computer industry at large. During his professional career, he has founded and built a number of successful businesses in the U.S. and Canada. Robert currently lives and works in the Seattle, Washington area. Robert, you have, a long, you have a long and storied and successful career. Oh, it's been fun. Um, I can't think of anything else to do. I love starting businesses. I love entrepreneurship. And for the past 30, almost 35 years, I've been in high tech, and it's been fun. Part of it's the creativity, being able to invent stuff and uh, solve problems. That's really what it comes down to. If you look behind me, that's one of my paintings from nearly 50 years ago. I'm also an artist. I paint, I draw, I write. Um, So all of those things come together to help you become a creative inventor. And again, I, I mentioned to you before our conversation that I went to a talk last night where there was a guy talking about inventions. And this is what the whole space of high tech and inventing really is all about. Robert, so that brings up a good question. So the stereotype is, you know, people in tech and startups are young people, you know, young, all that. After your 35 years in tech and startup space, why do you have enjoyed so much still? Why is it so fun to you? Well, first of all, it keeps you young. You know, it keeps your mind going. It keeps you young. You keep at the forefront of things and you see what's going on. But when you start falling behind, that's when you start getting old. And I don't plan on getting old for a long time. Yes, I feel exactly the same way. So in your time in startups and tech, there's been a lot of changes for some good, some bad. From your point of view, what has remained, remained the same? What has been constantly the same during that time period? That's a good question. Well, the things that stay the same are basic business principles. You know, hiring a good team. Uh, I was just, a lot of this I've just been discussing this past week. I would pick age and experience over youth and enthusiasm any day. I'd like to have all of those features, but as I say, age and experience are much better. 
I'd rather have a team of people that know what they're doing uh, and they've got battle scars to show for it, just like I do. Um, it means that you've survived, and that's important. Robert, when someone talks to you about the startup and they want you to join it, what makes you say yes to joining the startup or what makes you say no to joining the startup? Well, first of all, the product's got to solve a problem. It's got to be a broad-based problem and it's got to help people. Some of the ideas that I see today, and I think you probably agree with me as do many of my friends, uh, especially here in the Seattle area and down in Silicon Valley, you see them raising, oh my God, they raised another $50 million for what? And it's some idea like, oh, we're going to help keep your underwear clean or oh, we're going to, you know, it's a dot com, you know, food delivery service that happens to put ketchup inside your bag. It's like, what? And these guys raise 50 or $100 million. And then, you know, we try to raise a million or two million for a project that's, you know, somewhat significant, for example, in the finance business. And we got to struggle and fight hard to, to get into it. And that hopefully that'll lead into some more discussion as well about who I am and about stereotypes. Yes. When um, someone someone's is going to start a startup, what advice do you have for them for the startup journey? Well, number one, absolutely. Passion. Passion is the most important component. You've got to be compassionate about your project. You've got to love it. And you've got to follow through to the very end until it's over. And I've always described what we do, launching startups, very much like what I do with art and painting, art being artistic. Why? Because, you know, you end up, you have to go through certain processes that are very boring, but are atypical. In other words, like with a canvas, you stretch the canvas, you've got to prime it, coat it with white gesso, and then over time you start painting. And bit by bit, you work in broad strokes, very broad strokes. And it's like, you don't see much, but then bit by bit, you focus on certain things and you go, okay, let's work on details in this section. How about this area? And bit by bit, you orchestrate all this so that all the pieces come together and eventually the painting comes out of it. And you have to also be willing to accept the fact that the painting may not come out the way you originally thought it was going to come out, but that it's still going to be a masterpiece. But you have to be open-minded enough to allow this thing to create itself and evolve to become the painting that it is. And that's how I describe launching startups. It's just like art. You've got to be flexible, open, and you've got to work broad strokes and then work into the details over time. This is something I guess I've seen a lot of younger startups, and I do mentor a lot of, a lot of startups to see this, trying to keep them focused on what they should be doing and, and you know, working together to, to keep working on the painting together to get, this, to get this masterpiece done. And like I said, a lot of the time, your startup may not even at the end resemble anything close to what you first came up with because you're originally working on solving a problem and the problem evolves, the problem becomes clearer or shifts and you have to be able to adapt to it. Adaptation is key. Robert, I understand that you're looking at either starting an incubator pretty soon or you've already started one? Yes, in fact, um, that was one of the reasons I ended up you know, at this meetup yesterday and also with some discussions. Um, you know, I've talked to a couple of co-workers and uh, the folks that we work ended up wanting to talk about some of this stuff too because obviously they're all over the world and in some few few locations they've got what they call incubators but most incubators have a different kind of model and i've just recently started trying to put this idea together of a different approach to an incubator at least for myself um i'm one of those guys that i've got you know a lot of patents and i've got a lot of ideas and projects that i've done but i have more ideas than i can actually launch or fund myself you know it's lack of resources or time but on the other hand you go gee you know 10 years later you go you have this great idea. You see this idea launch. You go, oh my God, I had that idea 10 years ago. I should have done it. But some people have those you know, inspirations and other people don't. 
So I thought, you know, what if? And, and again, the emphasis is the fact that I've realized 99 out of 100 people don't have start by here. They just don't. You know, one person will come up with a great idea and the team will glom onto it and a whole bunch of people will form around it and make this thing happen as a startup. I thought, well, why not start an incubator where you've got 10, 12, 15 ideas, very unique. Everybody signs on as a, with a non-disclosure, non-compete, and then basically start having meetups and talk about the ideas. And then somebody in the back says, gee, I'm a, I'm a firmware guy. I'd like to work on that project. Oh, I'm a, I'm a software guy specializing in this. I want to work in this project. And so you have different people form basic groups and spin off to start talking and discussing and putting each of these projects together. And over time, you know, the 10, 12 projects all start, start evolving and becoming reality. And, of course, over time, you know, it starts the meetup, start attracting more and more people who want to join, find an opportunity they want to work on. And the next thing you know, you've got 10, 12 startups. And I would be more than happy to mentor each of them, get them going, create the ideas, and keep pushing them along and helping them evolve. My model is that I'll probably end up just keeping, you know, just a few points in each one. I'm not being greedy about it. For me, it's more of having the ideas become reality and turn into something that... that I think that's a great idea. So, Robert, when you're looking at startup teams, what makes you think to yourself, okay, this team has it, they're going to make it, or... What is this team even doing? They're wasting everyone's time. They need to go do something else. That's a good question, too. The, uh, some of the people that you run into, you know, and I'm sure you run into a few, you are in HR, it's unfortunate. You know, a lot of the kids, a lot of the younger people have never done a launch, launch to start up, so they don't know how to put teams together or how to organize or set up a, an office. And so, unfortunately, it just happens to be that, oh, we're all BFFs. So you bring in a bunch of buddies, not necessarily with any particular skills, and over time, you know, okay, well, why don't you be the HR guy? Oh, why don't you be the, none of them have any of the skills to do this stuff. And sometimes that's a recipe for disaster. If you're lucky, a lot of those people evolve and they'll learn and learn and learn and they'll actually add a lot to the startup. But in most cases, you really want to bring in expertise. You want the best of the best that you can attract. And what it also does is makes it a proving ground because if your idea is that damn good, you will attract people. But if it's not very good, good luck with bringing people on board. Yes. So, Robert, you know, San Francisco is known as the VC, as the mecca of the VC and the startup world. Seattle, not so much. How does Seattle get to that point where they're in the same level as San Francisco? Does Seattle even want to get to that level? Is Seattle happy with the where they're at right now? Well, it's funny, Jason. Um, the Seattle area, and especially where I live on the east side in Bellevue, is evolving very quickly, and especially in the startup scene and high tech scene. It's a funny kind of establishment because if you really look at it, this is where Microsoft started. And Microsoft is about as basic as it gets. This is the operating system that started in, in, in Redmond nearby with Bill Gates and, and, and his team. And then, of course, when we, my, my two kids and I drove all the way from Florida, we left Florida in 97, drove all the way across the country in a 25-foot moving truck with everything we own, and we landed in Bellevue. And at the time, Amazon was launching, eBay was launching, PayPal was launching. You know, things were really escalating fast. In fact, a lot of people don't know that um, Jeff Bezos launched Amazon here in, on the east side in Bellevue first out of a garage and eventually moved it over to the Seattle side. And uh, so Bellevue has been kind of a, a, an interesting place. Seattle, on the other hand, is the politics are different. Seattle tends to be a lot more liberal, and the east side in Bellevue tends to be a lot more conservative. And uh, that makes for some interesting politics as well. So it's an interesting ecosystem. I will tell you that in many ways, the, the venture capital scene here in I don't know, I'm probably shooting myself in the back, 
But the venture capital scene here in Seattle is not that much different from Silicon Valley. Most of my friends agree with me. And again, this is back to the events you talked about stereotypes of the, uh, the high-tech industry as well. A vast majority of the venture capital industry here is run by what I describe as the white Ivy League frat boy club. They're all frat boy buddies. They know each other. Um, and they've gone to school together, they hang out, they party, they've all got money, maybe come from rich families, and they've done well by gambling on high tech. And, um, you know, when you're in an area where you've got lots of success, of course, you can make a lot of money. So, of course, then they become, you know, bigger and bigger venture capital firms. And um, I find that, unfortunately, I walk into a venture capital, I've walked into venture capital groups, and before I even open my mouth, they look at me, see an Asian and right away, they expect me to speak broken English. And so those preconceived notions are still here. I sense it. I walk in the room. I can feel it. And a lot of my friends who are Asian or black or whatever, you know, non non-white, have run into the same situations. And these days, you know, thank goodness, women are finally starting to get attention. But they're also telling me similar experiences. You know, it's, it's a white frat boys Ivy League club. And so those things are starting to break and drop and change. My hope is that in the next five, 10 years, that will help Seattle evolve better. Unfortunately, as you probably see, um, Silicon Valley is still very locked into that kind of mentality. Yes, it's definitely a challenge. It's, it's a big, problem, big, big challenge that we got to solve. Yeah, I mean, and not, not only that, I mean, I'm in, I'm in my 60s. I'm in my later 60s, and they're like, wow, an Asian dude, and he's old? And it's like, well, you know, I look at them and I go, dude, Colonel Sanders didn't become a millionaire with Kentucky Fried Chicken until he was 60. Yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, and most people don't. They go, oh, really? And it's like age has nothing to do with it. It really doesn't. And the minute you leave that stuff behind, I think the better things will be. Now, when I, when I talk to some startup founders, their, their, their issue with them, they, they'll say that the VC and satellite really conservative with their money, and they always had to go to, to, go to San Francisco. But you talk to VCs, they'll tell you, the VCs in Seattle, they'll tell you, well, we only invest in companies that deserve funding. So there's obviously a disconnect there. Yeah, that's the most common, the most common attitude. You know, we only invest in companies that deserve the money, but it's their very narrow attitude of who, who deserves the money. I, I would be interested to see, like, uh, the, the, the stops in Seattle that we see know from Seattle VCs, how many go somewhere else to get funding? I would love to see that stat. So would I. I, I can tell you on a general sense, you know, just from meeting people and talking to people. I've got a lot of people I've met that have gone out of town, uh, not just to Silicon Valley, but to many, many other cities, and they've come back with funding. And of course, typically, and this is very, this is very atypical. You know, you start raising money, it starts coming in. All of a sudden, they come to the back door and go, oh, hey, you still raising money in that first round? I'd love to put money in now. And it's like, what? You know, sorry. You know, the back door is over there. See you later. Yeah. That's, that's very atypical up here. It's like, you know, the, it's... It's something they also describe about the Seattle area, passive-aggressive. And um, they tend to lay back and watch something else take off. And then, oh, now I guess I'll jump in because it's safe. Well, it's, that's why it's called risk capital. You take a risk because, you know, the return is high. But if you want to wait till it's safe, why would you want to invest in venture? Why would you want to invest in high tech? It's, you know, that's the whole point. Yes, I agree completely. Robert, next, can you talk about telling what you were successful in the past and what you learned from the success and what we can learn from your success? The success is always all about tenacity and sticking things out no matter what. All the way back to the late 60s, 
late 60s, I, I actually launched the t-shirt industry. I was the first guy to get into the t-shirt business back then. And, you know, had a partner. He eventually sold out to him. Next thing you know, I started another t-shirt factory with 20-some-odd employees, two shifts. And the next thing you know, this is like 70, yeah, 1970 and in Toronto. And weirdly, I got approached by this German couple literally around the corner from, from my factory. And they, had, they actually had me sign a thing called the non-disclosure. Never heard of one. And non-competes. So I signed it. Then they told me what they were going to do. They were manufacturing T-shirts. They wanted me to print something on them, wrap them up, and then ship, send them back to them. And they were going to distribute them nationally. Once they told me what it was, all I could do was scratch my head going, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Who the hell would do that? But what it was, you're not going to believe this. We printed the Adidas logo on the front and back of eight different colors of T-shirts in different sizes. It was the first branded T-shirt, probably in the world. And my attitude was, who the hell would pay money to wear somebody's logo on a T-shirt? <laughs> and of course, you know, a, a few thousand dozen ended up becoming like a 40, 50,000 dozen order. And this thing just exploded. And it kept my factory going. You know, three hours a day would pay for my whole factory. And the rest, rest of the day, whatever we did was pure profit. And I was the guy that jumped into the T-shirt industry. And we helped pioneer the branding industry. And of course, now everybody's got, you know, Nike finally came out, you know, not just Adidas, but, you know, everybody's got branded T-shirts. People love buying them and wearing them. And, you know, that's, that's one thing I will say is sometimes things come in from out of the woodwork, out of the blue, and you go, no, nah, that'll never work. But if you stay open to it, you go, wow, it really happened. <laughs> so and it's the same in high tech. It really is. You know, sometimes you see a project, you solve it, but a lot of people just have an attitude going, I don't think that's going to work. And you prove them wrong. And that's, you have the passion to back it. Robert, next, talk about a time you failed in the past, what you learned from this, and what we can learn from this. One of the biggest things about failure for me over the years has always been about people. I tend to be an empath. I tend to be very open. Um, I tend to be very trusting. I trust people. Um, and I think that's a good way to live life. But for better or worse, there are always people in every corner, in every industry, every market, that are evil. There are also bad people out there. And that may end up also being a little bit of this conversation later is about the prevalence of sociopaths in our society in certain areas. And with high tech, why wouldn't there be a lot of sociopaths here? Sociopaths love power, control, and money. And in high tech, wow, oh boy, you know, I helped control a company. And I guess when I first launched into high tech in 1983 and invented the first color scanners for PCs, I ended up having a partner, and he was basically my fundraiser. Um, he was a security scanner, and I misjudged. First of all, I didn't know any better. I'd never raised money before back then. This is in the 80s, and um, I trusted him. I thought, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. He's going to help raise money. He's got, he's got clients through the Midwest who can bring in investment. And I ended up giving him an equal block, an equal share of my company to mine. So basically, he and I each own something like 46, 47% of the company. And then the other 6 to 8% of the company, we sold off to investors. Well, a lot, you got to understand, most of those investors were his investors. So he had enough voting block to control and manipulate my company. And we, I ended up developing the color scanner. And we, raised, we actually raised about a million dollars um, back in 83, 84, you can't begin to imagine how hard it was raising a million dollars. But we did. And it was the old Reg D, 
Reg D, SEC Reg D had just come out. You know, you'd be able to raise a million dollars, you know, through private investors. And uh, we launched. I mean, I tell my story about that launch. And it comes down to the more, the more things change, the more they remain the same. If you look at crowdfunding, it hasn't changed. Same thing. Same as what we did 40, 50, you know, 40, 40 some odd years, 34 years ago. I basically, in 83, 84, the VHS video recording came out. And of course, everybody had a video video player at home. So I actually went, we, we hired a TV announcer and he's a newscaster locally back in Florida. And we created a script and the guy sat me down in a studio, you know, on the couch and everything with all the lights and the cameras. And the guy's like, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so and I'm here with Mr. Robert Lee. He's the founder of a company called Spectrafax. And so we ended up going through a 20-minute script. And part of it was, oh, well, you've invented a scanner for PCs. What's a PC? I had to explain what a PC was and you know, the whole thing. We edited it down to a 15, 20-minute videotape. And I swear, I'm not kidding. We shipped this out to 25, 30 investors across the Midwest, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and people watched it at home. you got to remember, this is like 83 with no YouTube or video or streaming or any of that stuff. We sent out video cassette tapes. Those people saw the videotape. I mean, instead of me flying out to all these cities and meeting people, they watched the videotape. Then they called this broker. They said, hey, I'm interested. And the next thing you know, the $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 check started coming in. And we ended up raising pretty much a million dollars in the span of a few months. And my company, Spectrafax, was launched. That's how it was done. And like I said, you know, looking back, you know, my gosh, we basically crowdfunded this with video back in 83. So it's quite a piece of history. That's a great, another great story, Robert. Robert <laughs> tell us about someone who's helped you in the past and how they helped you. The tail end of that story was Spectrafax, again, and this will lead into some of it helped me. They ended up stiffing me. They ended up stealing my company. They kicked me out of the company. I was chairman and CEO because I lost, I only had 49% of the vote. They basically screwed me. They threw me out. And the one person that was really probably one of the greatest influences and the only real mentor I've ever had in my life was a gentleman by the name of Dick Williams. And Dick Williams was up in um, Lake Mary. He had a, a lab up there and it was Numa Corporation. And we found him just by sheer coincidence. And his company ended up taking on my project as the contractor to help us develop the color scanner and to help us develop some other products. And when I lost my company, I will honestly tell you that Dick was probably one biggest support that I had through that difficult time. They basically left me with $50,000 in debt and intensely screwed me, you know, to make sure I never got back up. And they blocked me out of the company. They had back wages. They owed me everything else. It was a very rough time. And Dick Williams ended up continuing to encourage me and also be very supportive in terms of, you know, come on, keep moving, keep, keep working on projects and doing stuff. And he's the one person that, you know, over the years, up until he passed away a few years ago, he was a great influence in my life. He was like a father. He was a real, that was my mentor. And That's you know, great. You had him in your life during that time period. Yeah. It's, well, Dick was also very well, he's a genius. Like I was one of those true men such geniuses. I wouldn't be surprised if Dick's IQ was probably in the 150s or one, you know, at the level. He could not only paint and draw. He also was a, a, a musician, composed music. He had numerous patents, way beyond what most of us knew. And Dick, for example, was even on the uh, barcode committee. 
He was one of the people that helped develop the barcode system, among other things. He was a brilliant guy. I would call him up with ideas, and he goes, oh, we worked on that 30 years ago. You know, that kind of stuff. He was just absolutely sharp. Robert, tell us something about yourself that most people don't know. You're, you're, of course, your close family, close friends know this, but people who deal with you day-to-day don't know this about Robert Lee. I don't wear underwear. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, like I said, you know, for better or for worse, I tend to trust people, and I tend to be very open. And I think in the long run, it does help. But um, the bad side of it is that you leave yourself open and very vulnerable at times, too. And uh, bad people can take advantage of it. And that has happened as well, obviously, both on a personal level as well as on business. You know, romance particularly, because, you know, you end up with, I guess, lack of a better term, gold digger. There are a lot of gold diggers out there. Um, And that's not a good thing either. But, like I said, for better or worse, I think that's what made me who I am, being an open, sensitive person, because... That's also how you end up attracting ideas. You end up hopefully attracting good people to surround yourself with, and uh, you trust. And things seem to work out. They always seem to work out. Robert, I understand you have a, a book to recommend to our listeners. Yes. I mentioned this earlier, of course, when we were having our offline conversation. My lifetime book is a book by, called uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, and it's by a doctor, Maxwell Maltz. He passed away years ago, Dr. Maxwell Maltz. I read that book when I was 12 years old, and um, it's impacted my life all these years, over 50 years. I've recommended it to people. The book's been rewritten a few times. Um, it's been republished multiple, numerous and, and bought. The company's been bought and sold over and over again. Psycho-Cybernetics basically is all about visualization. Um, and from his book, I believe that you know things like Werner Erhard, Hest, and um, Shakti Gawain with Creative Visualization – those techniques are all based on Dr. Maxwell Maltz's original concept of creative visualization. Maxwell Maltz was a plastic surgeon. That's how he started. And he realized that he had patients that kept coming back to him saying, oh, I don't like this. I, I need to have my face worked on more. And he, he realized that no matter what and no matter how much money these people spent, they would never be happy with him. They weren't, it wasn't good enough. They kept not. So what he started to do was to prepare people surgery and he would make eventually have people lay back in an armchair close their eyes okay visualize yourself relax take a deep breath oh look at your face you've just finished surgery your cheeks are perfect your eyelids are clean and fine da, 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 and have them visualize this and he found an accessory with uh, uh, plastic surgery which much higher so then he thought hmm, i wonder if i can use these techniques with other people so then he started taking for example a high school basketball team, and he divided the team in half. And half the team would be sent in the gym with the coach, and they would practice shooting hoops. The other half of them would sit in a quiet room with the lights dimmed down, kick back in an armchair, and he'd have them close their eyes. Okay, take a deep breath, relax. Now, you're standing at the line, you've got the basketball, you bounce it a couple of times, you look at the hoop, you see it, you put the ball in your hand, swoosh, you can feel the ball leaving your fingertips, look, the ball is going to the hoop. Oh, it's a ringer. It goes right into the hoop and it goes through. He had those boys practicing visually in their brains to envision being successful. To his surprise, the boys that were inside the darkened room, seeing all this and practicing, actually did better than the boys that were out in the court. So he started thinking, well, gee, what if I took it to another level? And he started training other people to use creative visualization, and the, the, the success rate was incredible. 
So that's how he ended up coming up with the concept of psychocybernetics and then wrote the book about it. And as I say, it seems like you know, visualization is more and more of a technique these days with all these different things, you know, where they promote success, visualization. And that's, Maxwell Maltz's contribution to psychocybernetics runs a lot deeper than most people are willing to acknowledge. And I'm hoping your listeners and your viewers will actually go find this book. It's available in paperback. You can get it on eBay or Amazon. Buy a used copy if you have to. Read the book. It's an excellent piece, even in this generation. Very inspiring. Thank you, Robert. Robert, can you provide your social media links so people can reach out to you? Sure. Well, most people can find me under Robert in Seattle or Robert Lee. And um, um, I'll, I'll send those along to you as well to uh, you know put on your site. But yeah, you'll find me under Robert in Seattle on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn and uh, you know Facebook. Been on those for many, many years. Um, it's kind of funny because even at this stage of my life, in my late 60s, I'm still on all the social media, experimenting with it, learning about it. And it's, it's fun. It's kind of neat to explore those things to see what's going on. And I'm finding that, amazingly, a lot of people in their 30s even are considered old these days. And I'm using social media more than they are, or at least I know more about it than they do. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's a lot to keep up with. It keeps changing. And for our listeners, we have the links to our social media and his book recommendations on our show notes. You can find our show notes at our blog, www com. Robert, we'll come to the end of our talk. Can you provide the listeners any uh, wisdom or advice? Well, one thing is, well, two pieces of advice. One is never give up, and the other is social media. Number two, don't believe everything you read online. I, that's a personal note. I will add to that. I've had some come after me and attack me online and try to hurt my reputation. And what's interesting is that the people who don't know me take it at its, at its base and believe it. And then my friends are like, what the heck is this? And defend me. And it's, it's where, unfortunately, social media has devolved. And uh, it does happen to a lot of us. Um, you've seen it happen to good people, bad people. And it's, it's unfortunate. But that's the, that's the dark side of social media. That's also, again, this is the entrepreneur. In that's also possibly... An opportunity. I'm going to put this out there. Maybe some of you geeks out there will want to work a new app or a new new software software solution. You might want to look at reputations. You might want to look at helping with keeping things honest and open. There's an opportunity there. You know, how do you know that what you're reading is true? How do you know that what you're hearing about someone is real? And I think there's an opportunity there for somebody to be able to do to help and, and improve things online. It's only going to get worse unless we step in and fix this. Yes, that is a great opportunity for someone to step up and make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've all got thou- a lot of us have thousands and thousands of connections, you know, on all the social social networks. But who do you really know? You know, out of my Facebook friends, maybe twenty or thirty of them are very true, close friends. The rest of them are just acquaintances. We've never met personally. We've never even hugged. We've never shaken hands. You know, a few of them have gotten close with but overall just general acquaintances interesting people yes robert thank you for your time today i really appreciate it i know you have a lot going on i just want to thank you for your time thanks jason really appreciate being on and uh, looking forward to seeing how this kind of turns out hopefully you you got the better side of my face <laughs> and to our listeners thank you for your time as well and remember to be great every day thank 
you for listening to today's episode of Kavnis HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit KavnisHR.com or connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook at Kavnis HR. Thanks again, and be great every day. Thank you.